Hello this is Arun the co-producer and narrator of the podcast you're just about to listen to Thanks so much for choosing to listen to our podcast This podcast is made with immersive audio so get your headphones out and connect it to your device or if you're listening to it on a great home stereo with a bluetooth connection or home theater system or in the comfort of your car for that amazing immersive audio experience we hope you like it This is a Scrap Studio production and we at Scraps are an organization whose primary focus is to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists and innovation as a service to the world. We take pride in bringing you the stories of people in science and history of science. If you like this series, please do search for our other podcasts from Scrap Studio. The podcast is titled Scraps with a K. It's S K R A P S, which is an interview-based podcast series focusing on many topics with expert scientists and innovators on a variety of topics like biomedical engineering, cardiac biology, medtech, climate change, psychopathy, human composting, material science, artificial intelligence, venture capital, and many more. We don't just talk about the subjects. we talk about the stories of the very scientists who work on these areas if you like our work please share it with your friends family and acquaintances and please talk about it over coffee drinks and on vacation this is the best help that you can provide us As the trails of RPGs lit up the deserted bazaar in the southern town of Afghanistan, the commanding officer thought that Lance Corporal Burney had stepped on an explosive. The three-day fight to reclaim the Taliban stronghold was fierce. The blood and the bullets were relentless. Casualties and life-altering injuries were the norm, and returning to base in one piece was a rarity. The squad had made significant advances in fighting the enemy back. but now they found themselves stuck under interminable and heavy fire they had one wounded man and their location was perilous they were on a narrow crossroad with the insurgents hiding in an orchard ahead of them buildings with possible snipers behind them and a patch of recently turned earth in the middle all of the soldiers knew that the patch of disturbed dirt was just as likely to be laced with ieds as anything else The commanding officer ordered his troops to advance to a cover of a mud wall and the irrigation ditch. The bullets seemed to gain speed, momentum, and the frequency as the last night of day faded. Jacobs, an embedded reporter, would write in a journal, and I quote, "That's when I realized that there was a casualty and saw the injured marine about ten yards from where I had stood. For the second time in my life, I watched a marine lose his. He was hit with the RPG, which blew off one of his legs and badly mangled the other." I hadn't seen it happen. Just heard the explosion. I hit the ground and lay as flat as I could and shot what I could of the scene. Two Marines stood over their injured brother. Their protective stance gave cover to Bernie and left them exposed. Things were not looking good. The first tourniquet on the leg broke. They applied another. There wasn't much to work in terms of supplies or the leg. The screaming was unbearable. The constant sound of human anguish can never be unheard 
and can never be forgotten. Troops belly crawled over the rocks and under bullets to drag Bernie to the MRAP, a mine-resistant armored vehicle that accompanied the patrol. You're doing fine, Bernie. You're going to make it. You might have a limp, they joke, but you're going to make it. We got you. Stay with us. Connor, a marine in his third combat tour, held Bernie's head in his hands. He had been here before and knew what the last breaths that a man takes felt like. The pain in Bernie's legs suddenly faded. His breath grew shallow and incomplete. He was cold. He was scared. But he was not alone. His brother would never leave him behind. No marine ever would. Bernie's last breath would live in Connor's mind long after the bullet subsided. Long after he'd returned home. Long after he tried to reclaim his civilian life, he would never surrender. He would never forget. This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic use of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class as old as humankind itself, banished into exile, yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders. How do you mend a broken heart? There seem to be endless TV shows, movies, advice columns, memes, and even more about this subject, enough to fill its very own data lake. But how do you heal a broken mind? Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, can happen to anyone at any time. It can be the result of nearly any traumatic experience, such as war or combat, rape, natural disasters, serious accidents, witnessing or experiencing violence, or even the threat of death or sexual violence or injury. PTSD can be the result of acute instances like a car accident or chronic events like physicians and nurses working the front lines throughout the COVID crisis. Feelings of sadness, fear, rage, tension, and detachment are frequent manifestations even long after the event that caused the PTSD is over. Other manifestations of PTSD include flashbacks, nightmares, intense distress, physical pain, sweating, nausea, panic, ease to anger, hypervigilance, sleep disturbance, irritability, aggression, difficulties concentrating, anxiety, and more. Do you remember our discussion of the croc brain in episode one? It's the brain telling you when to pay attention to a possible threat and when to take action. In the case of PTSD, the body continues to produce cortisol and adrenaline long after the danger has passed. And the amygdala, which is the region of the brain that processes the emotional response, triggers that defensive response and over time contributes to the symptoms of PTSD, especially during any triggers of sight or sound, 
that trigger the memories of the trauma. They trigger hypervigilance. While there is growing realization of PTSD now, would it surprise you if we said that the groundwork for understanding PTSD was laid in the 1800s, around the same time that the conflicts between Native Americans and the white settlers took place? The pioneer in this area was Jean-Martin Charcot, a French neurologist dubbed by many of his time as the Napoleon of neurosis. If you're a neurology speciality inclined, many medical students would know Dr. Charcot from his description of various phenomena in the field of medicine, like the Charcot-Marie-Tooth syndrome or Charcot's disease, which later was called Lou Gehrig's disease. Or if you have brushed up on basic gastroenterology during the medicine curriculum, Charcot's triad, described in gallbladder infection, or his description of another triad in neurology to help diagnose multiple sclerosis. So Charcot was a very important figure in medicine. Charcot was a physician at the Salpeter Hospital where he worked with traumatized women through hypnosis in one of his most famous female patients with hysteria, Louise Augustine Glazies. Charcot demonstrated that the hysterical symptoms characterized by sudden paralysis, amnesia, sensory loss, and in some extreme cases, convulsions were due to psychological symptoms and not physiological. He noted that the traumatic events could induce a hypnotic state in his patients and was the first to, and I quote, describe both the problems of suggestibility in these patients and the fact that hysterical attacks are dissociative problems and as a result of having endured unbearable experiences. In fact, this is the first time we are talking of dissociative symptoms on this podcast. It refers to the manner in which the subject who has experienced trauma dissociates themselves from the current surroundings and gets transported back to the original trauma. In fact, his thoughts ran contrary to the prevalent thinking of the time. The way physicians approach hysteria itself was by hysterectomy. Hysterectomy refers to the process of surgically removing the uterus in these women who are afflicted with hysteria. The simple reason for performing hysterectomy in the worst cases of hysteria is due to the opinion that the physicians had at the time that the female hormones trigger these emotional responses. Even Freud became a student of Charcot's philosophy on trauma and called the presence of dissociation found in his patients with hysteria as a splitting of consciousness, which he termed hypnoid hysteria. But the world was about to change their view of hysteria or trauma in general in the next few years. If you're a fan of war movies like me, or a huge fan of Steven Spielberg's movies, or even the most recent Oscar-nominated 1917, you would have noticed that most soldiers in world wars experienced what was called as a shell-shock phenomenon, which was observed at the time with symptoms of uncontrolled weeping, screaming, memory loss, physical paralysis, and lack of responsiveness. These veterans after the world war took to substance abuse or alcohol abuse, and many physicians blamed their poor moral character as the reason for these symptoms. But one physician, Abram Cardiner, at the time, thought differently. Dr. Cardiner called it as he saw it, and I quote, the subject 
acts as if the original traumatic situation were still in existence and engages in protective devices which failed on the original occasion. We bring up Cardiner because he was one of the first physicians who thought carefully about the choices he had to pursue in treating the shell shock veterans. He had to decide in treating these patients whether he should bring back traumatic memories into patients' consciousness or focus on stabilization. We will explore the results of both these approaches in this episode. So to recap, the first treatments for PTSD was via psychological first aid for World War I veterans and in Charcot's case, for women with sexual abuse and trauma through hypnotherapy. Abram Cardiner and his colleague Herbert Spiegel argued that the most powerful intervention against overwhelming terror was, and I quote, the degree of relatedness between the soldier, his immediate fighting unit and the leader. Consequently, the treatment for traumatized soldiers during the Second World War focused on minimizing separation between these soldiers and their comrades and provided brief intervention methods such as hypnosis. Cardinal and Spiegel, however, warned that cathartic experiences and hypnosis by themselves, without consistent follow-up, were not sufficiently helpful and that unless the traumatic memories were integrated in consciousness, the improvement would not last. So during World War II, psychiatrists reintroduced hypnosis as a treatment for trauma and the U.S. Army instituted the use of group stress debriefing. But beyond sexual abuse or physical trauma experienced in civilian life or by soldiers in a combat setting, the first realization that a tragic event could trigger PTSD came from another sad story in 1942, just one year before Hoffman took his LSD-laced bicycle trip. A fire broke out in a nightclub called Coconut Grove in Boston, and it took the lives of 493 people with it. Dr. Lindemann, who treated a number of survivors, observed many common responses. After the initial sadness of losing a close friend or a relative in the club, combined with the expression of guilt, disorganization, and physical complaints like cramping, Lindemann made some key observations that pertains to our diagnosis. One, identification of a stressful event that cannot be undone. Two, the problem overtaxes the psychological resources with repeated memory recalls of the event. Three, the situation is perceived as a danger or a threat to self or to the family or community. Four, the crisis period which is characterized by tension which mounts to a peak, then falls. Five, and probably more importantly, the crisis situation awakens unresolved key problems from near and distant past. So now you can make a correlation to many symptoms felt by victims of war and other forms of trauma. On top of this physical trauma, there can be developmental trauma that is characterized by emotional or sexual abuse in children, and this, over time, can lead to insufficient development of neuronal structures necessary to process information, regulate emotions, and categorize experience. All of this leads to poor impulse controls, aggression, difficulty in interpersonal relationships, inability to concentrate, and in some cases, poor academic performance. As a result, some of these subjects might take to substance abuse to regulate their emotional arousal, an effect observed and brought to light by Dr. Gabor Mate in Canada. 
Not everyone with PTSD is easily or officially diagnosed, but the DSM-5 Diagnostic Criteria for PTSD is a fairly easily administered self-check that can help point someone in the direction of help. The DSM-5 looks at the following. A. Exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. B. The presence of one or more of the symptoms we mentioned a few moments ago that are associated with a traumatic event or events beginning after the trauma occurred. C. Persistent avoidance of stimuli associated with a traumatic event beginning after the event occurred as evidenced by avoidance of the distressing memories or avoidance of external reminders such as people, places, activities, etc. D. Negative alterations in cognition and mood associated with the event. E. Marked alterations in arousal and reactivity associated with the traumatic event. F. Duration of the previously mentioned disturbances for longer than one month. G. The disturbance causes clinically significant distress or impairment in functioning. And finally, H. The disturbance is not attributable to substance misuse or other medical condition. But let's just take a case of a soldier whose PTSD is caused by events in combat. Soldiers are trained to never let their guard down and to never surrender, to never give up. As one combat veteran recently told me, hypervigilance in Iraq is what keeps you alive. Vigilance is as much a part of their protective gear as their bulletproof vests. A state of readiness is constant. How are they treated currently? No marks for guessing the current standard of care. It's with antidepressants and talk therapy with psychologists. First, I'd like to acknowledge that we recognize that there are many, many causes of PTSD and many groups seeking to help find new treatments or improve existing ones. But for the sake of simplicity, we have chosen to focus on military population and on one organization of many that are advocating for this group and for new treatments. There has been sensational work done with non-veterans by the legendary Dr. Gabor Mate, and you can gather a lot about this from his two best-selling books, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, or When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress. First, we would like to introduce you to two outstanding gentlemen and veterans of the wars of the Middle East. Keith Abraham, a former member of the Parachute Regiment, a combat unit in the UK, and Jesse Gould, a former US Army Ranger. It is important to understand the stories of Keith and Jesse and their journey. Jesse and Keith head up Heroic Hearts and Heroic Hearts UK, respectively, two nonprofit organizations dedicated to helping veterans address their PTSD through psychedelic assisted therapy. Keith and Jesse aren't just servicemen and philanthropic minded individuals. They both suffered from PTSD as a result of their time and service to their countries. They both also found help in some very unconventional ways that speak volumes of how our healthcare systems and our society work in the era of the war on drugs. Here is Keith Abraham. I was a member of the Parachute Regiment, um, which is a combat unit here in the UK. And I, during my career, uh, I had a wonderful career, a very rewarding career. Uh, during that career, I served in Iraq, 
and I also served in Afghanistan in 2008. And Iraq was not really a combat campaign by the time that I got there. Afghanistan really, really was. And so it, I came back home from Iraq just feeling very positive about life and my career and didn't really experience anything overly uh, difficult for me to deal with. But in Afghanistan, is an entirely different situation. Um, it descended into extreme violence, which I was trained for, we were all trained for, which is something that I actually wanted as well at that point. Um, but you've got to be careful what you wish for in these sorts of roles. And it, it really, our, our area of operation actually became known as the mouth of hell. Uh, by, by the Taliban, we could hear them talking and they would always refer to this, to our area as the mouth of hell because it was so extremely violent. Uh, and from a British armed forces, ground forces perspective, our small little area of operation became the main effort of the whole brigade. And we also made use of international forces as well. It was that extreme. We drew, everyone sort of was drawn into it. Um, and like I say, I kind I signed up for that experience. We all did. You wouldn't join a combat unit unless you actually wanted combat. Um, but it wasn't, to be honest, if I'm very honest, it wasn't too long before I realised that it was more than I actually wanted. Um, in my first contact with enemy forces, two of my very good friends died immediately, and that was my first experience of combat. Um, and so it was shocking and overwhelming and traumatic because I had to deal. We had to deal with their their bodies and their very close friends. Um, and and that that was the first incident. And we had many of those incidences. And so I, I knew even while I was out there that I was overwhelmed and very tense. Um, I was still able to perform a role, but I recognised that I was. I was having to hold, I was holding on. Um, and so I still performed the role very well, but I was holding on. And so was very grateful by the end of the tour. I was very happy to be going home. When I got home, I found myself really resentful of um, society, UK society, normal society. Uh, I saw them pottering around supermarkets and carrying on about their daily lives and I felt really resentful of that, that they had no knowledge of the trauma that I'd experienced. And that's an unfair evaluation, of course, but this is my perspective at the time. And I felt resentful. I was grieving um, the loss of many friends and I was in shock because of that, those experiences. And I suppose the skill that I didn't really have was an ability to convey, to express myself and to articulate what I'd experienced. Actually, that's a very that's a difficult thing to do anyway, even if you are articulate. Um, Warfighting experiences, that's a hard thing to articulate. And I mention this because in the circle of loved ones and people that cared about me, they obviously saw that I was struggling, wanting to help, but they had no, you know, they could have no idea, really. And so that was really frustrating. So I was resentful, I was angry, I was grieving, I was in shock and I was frustrated because I couldn't tell 
people what I was experiencing, what I was suffering from and experiencing adequately. And so they couldn't help me. I don't think that one can ever get used to hearing the traumatic stories of combat. But combat doesn't seem to end when the battle is over. The conflict continues in the memories of our soldiers. Here is Jesse Gould and his post-combat experience with re-entering civilian life. My name is Jesse Gould. I was an Army Ranger, uh, and my time in service included three combat deployments to Afghanistan. When I got out of the military, I uh, decided to adapt to civilian life, uh, go into finance. That was my academic background. Um, But around that time, a lot of issues, mental health issues, really started to flare up. And I quickly came to, to see, to be faced with the fact that there was very limited options for people like me uh, in terms of actual comprehensive care and, and healing uh, to get past these mental traumas. So I found myself in this situation where I was just really struggling with anxiety, depression, alcoholism. Um, you know, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I assumed all sorts of other issues, undiagnosed, were also going on. And just found myself in this situation in life where I was just very unhappy and more days were starting to become dark than light. And I just fortunately had the, the, the warning signs go off in my brain that that wasn't a sustainable formula. So I started looking at options. Um, and again, I just kind of hit walls. The, the VA had very limited options outside of medication. Um, everything else I tried to do holistically just sort of had helpful aspects, but limited. Guess how they are treated. Here is Keith again. So I did seek professional help. I, again, I see this as a very typical experience of many people, not just veterans, but we struggle with mental health. We go and see our GP or in the UK or a physician. And we we usually get the two options of talking therapies and pharmaceutical assistance. So, and I tried them. Neither of them were very helpful for me. I'll go into the reasons for that in a second. But talking about that ability to convey and to express myself adequately that was actually one cause of the, um, uh, the breakdown of a very, very significant relationship for me. And when that broke down, that was kind of my, my anchor to reality. And so I, re- I struggled even more. Then I was grieving of an important, the loss of an important relationship on top of everything else. So I was very depressed, anxious, still hyper alert of all of my surroundings because that's how you have to operate in Afghanistan. Or in, in any combat environment. So then after I sought professional help, the pharmaceuticals do not sit well in my system. Uh, they, they numbed me of all emotion. And I, that, that didn't feel like it was worth living then. And that's dangerous for me when I was already depressed. If I didn't think life was worth living because I couldn't feel anything, it was almost uh, no, it wasn't almost. It was more, I, was, I wanted to feel something. And if I had to feel my trauma again, that was more um, important to me than feeling nothing. So I came off of them. I came off sertraline is what I was prescribed. They, it felt toxic in my body anyway, but emotionally it was very dangerous for me. It took me down a path of, of yeah, that, that would have ended in suicide, I think. Even on the antidepressants themselves would have taken me to the root of suicide, which is, doesn't necessarily make sense, but that's how I experienced it. Can we pause for a second here and take stock? 
The antidepressant market is projected to be over $28 billion and is widely prescribed almost as the first choice medication. Keith described how it numbed all of his emotions. On top of this, a typical antidepressant medication, or SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, like Paxil, have other side effects. It reads like a grocery list of untoward effects. Sleepiness, drowsiness, tired feeling, nervousness, insomnia, dizziness, nausea, skin rash, headache, diarrhea, constipation, upset stomach, stomach pain, dry mouth, changes in appetite, abnormal ejaculation, impotence, decreased sex drive, difficulty having an orgasm, dry mouth, and weight loss. (sighs) While I know that all sounds like fun, Some of the more serious side effects of Zoloft include rigid muscles, high fever, sweating, confusion, faster, uneven heartbeat, feeling you might pass out, agitation, hallucinations, overactive reflexes, tremors, vomiting, feeling unsteady, loss of coordination, trouble concentrating, memory problems, weakness, fainting, seizure, shallow breathing, or breathing that stops. Yes, This definitely sounds like the vacation you need from your PTSD. And we're not picking only on Zoloft. Paxil's side effects are no less horrifying. With Paxil, you can also add nasal irritation, yawning, and ringing in the ears. Oh, and please do call your doctor immediately if you're experiencing suicidal thoughts. None of this sounds like a solution. So what alternative treatments are there for PTSD? I'm glad you asked. The American Psychological Association has issued clinical practice guidelines strongly recommending four interventions for PTSD, all of which are variations of cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. CBT is the frontline recommendation. Behind that are cognitive processing therapy, cognitive therapy, and prolonged exposure. Right. So, and I'm simplifying here. What we're asking for is usually 12 to 16 sessions when we're telling people to confront their fears and change their behavior. I don't deny that this method may be beneficial for many, but it works less for veterans. Here's Keith Abraham again. And so, and talking therapies, like I was saying about articulation and being able to express oneself, they're very professional and I know you don't have to have Um, corresponding life experiences to be a therapist I understand that but as veterans are notorious for these for this and I'm no different so I really struggled to to form that working relationship that's so important and actually is a big there's a massive amount of luck uh, in that finding that relationship I did find one in the end years later I found one in the end I had 12 weeks with her she was very helpful but again, I always I, I see talking therapies as a management tool instead of a healing therapy. So it's, they're important. Talking therapies are important, but they're limited. Um, I knew it would never heal me, and I really needed healing. I couldn't go on the way that I was going on because I was spiraling downwards by then. Um, and and so I reached a point of pretty much hopelessness because I, I recognised that talking therapies wasn't going to wasn't going to heal me, even though it was interesting and, and valuable. Pharmaceuticals, I had no further interest. I gave them another go just to make sure, but I had the same experience again. And so I knew 
I know there's other options like body-based exercises, which I now I'm now a teacher of, that are important and very valuable, and that I think there are other therapeutic methods, of course, and I've tried the vast majority of them, like hypnotherapy, sound therapy. But for me personally, none of them, I recognised that none of them on their own or collectively were actually going to help me. The hopelessness and despair is something that I can only barely imagine. With a veteran population in particular, there is a taboo, a discomfort and reticence within the community to even ask for help. It is important to note that while Jesse was diagnosed with PTSD, Keith was not. But an official diagnosis in these cases seem a little like asking Captain Obvious what the date of Cinco de Mayo was. Both Jesse and Keith explored the recommended interventions for PTSD, pharmacological, talk therapy, and even holistic options. But they ultimately found relief through a very unconventional path. Let's hear from our two veterans, Keith Abraham first. Uh, I heard about, so because I was visibly struggling now, while I was holding on before, I was now visibly struggling. Externally, it was quite clear. My behavior had changed. Um, and it, it was clear to anyone that cared to look. Um, and so a, a friend of mine in the US, she saw that and suggested that, you know, that there's another option. There's, there is still hope and hope is all I really need. You know, that's all most of us really need is a little bit of hope to just keep going. And um, I did, so I didn't do any research. I trust her implicitly. Um, I would also I would always suggest people do their own research, of course. But I was so hopeless. I trusted her implicitly. I didn't do any real research on ayahuasca. I just told my boss. Um, I'd left the military by then and I was actually working for JP Morgan in London. I told my boss that I was going to take two weeks off. I flew out to Peru and um, I w- I'd been put in contact with two local people, not, not indigenous people, just local Peruvians in a city called Tarapoto. And they very, very, very kindly gave me use of their hut in the jungle. So I had to make my way by car from Tarapoto to a place called Chazuta, which is a jungle town. And then from Chazuta, I had to get onto a, a little boat. One plus being a military veteran, you know, being, you know, I even had to, after, so that was an hour's car journey. It was an hour boat ride. It was an hour hike into the jungle after that and there's no running water or electricity at that hut so I had to carry all of my food and water with me as well but I was in, I'd only been out of the military a year and a half so carrying heavy equipment into the jungle I'm like well this is what I do anyway so it was kind of was like good I feel back to yeah this is my nature this is what I can do this is my skill set so that didn't phase me at all um, and so I did have someone that checked in on me nearby, Juan. He was a cacao farmer. He lived further up river, about 500 meters or so. Other than that, I was actually left to my own devices. There was a river next to the hut. So I just sat by the river and spent time in nature. And I was there for about 10 days and twice during that period, the shaman, 
Juan had already obviously told him that I was there at some point. He came up and um, he brought this really dirty, uh, it was an old Coca-Cola bottle and it was full of this, looked like mud from the outside, really disgusting. Um, and he came up and he took out a shot glass and um, laid me down in the hut. So he was laying down with me, gave me a shot of this drink that was ayahuasca, sang, started singing, and then everything changed. Um, so that, that's how I found myself there. Um, yeah, and that, that is then when the catalyst kicked off. So what is this mud-coloured liquid that was handed to Keith? We do know that ayahuasca tea, as it is referred to by the Western world, is a brew of two plants. One of them is rich in DMT or dimethyltryptamine. And where does this come from? The plant that provides DMT is called Psychotria viridis and is commonly referred to as the chakruna plant, whose leaves are rich in DMT. But we told you in our last episode that DMT experience is very short-lived and hence referred to as businessman's lunch in common parlance. So the indigenous people of South America, through centuries of trial and error, found that another plant, Banisterosis capi, a woody vine that grows and climbs and twines around a large tree, and the stems of which can grow up to 24 inches in diameter and 100 meters in length. Remember our first two episodes on mescaline? where we discuss that the alkaloids present in San Pedro and peyote, much like what is found in coffee and tea plants, are made inside the plants to either store water and nutrients for the plants, or to concentrate these nutrients, and in some cases, to repel predators. Panisterosis capi wine, being a tropical wine, has this amazingly vascularized system that conducts water over large distances from the ground. So you can imagine how the plant and the nature has devised the presence of these alkaloids to enable some of these key functions. Banisterosis carpi stems are rich in an alkaloid called harmine. Guess what the interesting property of harmine is? It is a blocker of one enzyme subtype called monoamine oxidase A which is heavily involved in the metabolism of serotonin and other adrenergic compounds in our body. And if you stare at the structure of harmine for a few seconds, you will notice the similarity of the harmine molecule to the indole structure that we spoke about, with a 6-carbon hexagonal benzene ring attached to a pentagonal ring with nitrogen at the vertex. There are other side chains, of course, so the harmine alkaloid is referred to as a beta-carboline instead of an indole. I think that's enough chemistry for now. In essence, it prolongs the amount of time that the psychedelic molecule DMT can be present in the body by blocking the breakdown of dimethyltryptamine. Over the course of this podcast, we have seen several inquiries about what a psychedelic trip is like. And the answers, as with many good things, is... It's complicated. Not only do the different substances produce different outcomes, but as we've already covered, set and setting have a great deal to do with the trip. Let's also add intention to it. 
in the case of a psychedelic assisted therapy for PTSD most go into the experiences with a goal in mind but for you to understand the power of ayahuasca and the feelings or emotions or access that comes through the experience and how it adds to the healing perhaps keith's experience will help you answer your question like i said I'd had this awakening prior to my ayahuasca experience so there was a shift but like i said it was actually difficult it 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 helped in many many ways but it also was quite difficult and challenging for me so i didn't really have much of a vocabulary yet but once i had laid down on the floor in that hut with my shaman and he started singing i and and i went there in, you mentioned um trust you're absolutely right it, it does take in a, a certain amount of trust you you're right and um for certain other people that can be quite difficult i all i know is that i was hopeless and so anything that was even potentially helpful i was going to go and give it my very best shot and so i went i went with an open heart i went with an open mind and i just trusted that something valuable would come from it and so it's it was obviously night when the ceremonies took place and the songs were the songs are a kind of vehicle uh a vehicle f- to take you further into the experience that the medicine um brings about and the way that i remember it really is that i i lay down closed my eyes i started listening to him sing and i was thinking i got to a point where i was thinking actually this is is this a bit of a waste of time because i don't feel anything but it's not unpleasant because his songs are they're lovely songs i love listening to them but nothing's actually happened next thing i know i just recognize that i've woken up but i haven't woken up here in this reality i'd woken up in the realm of what i now call spirit and so this is of this is a massive shift it just even waking up in that environment and it being real to to my so that to me the experiencer that was as real as this is i believe it now is as real as this is but for me that was in itself shocking but wonderful and exciting and incredible uh and so i recognized that I was actually unconscious in my physical body but I was awake in the realm of spirit and uh, in the realm of spirit I can f- do as I please I was I became aware of an understanding of time and space and I watched the planets revolve around our star our solar system and um but then at one point This is actually in the second ceremony. At one point a voice uh, came out of the darkness and said, "Have you have you finished?" as a, alluding to, "Have I finished playing?" And I I recognized it as an, a voice of authority. Um it wasn't stern, it was just plain, "Have you finished?" And I thought, "Ah, oh, ah, oh, this is it. Okay, so I'm here to work. This is it. Yes, I have finished playing." um I'm ready to do some work that was my non-vocal response non-verbal response 
then I woke up, I just woke up again in a classroom, like a Victorian classroom. I was sat at a desk like this, and there was a blackboard in front of me. And then there was a woman teacher, and she was clearly the teacher. I was alone, but she was the teacher. And I recognized that she was the spirit of the medicine manifested as a woman in front of me. And again, so I accepted that she was the authority and that she was the medicine. I intuitively understood that she was the medicine itself talking to me. And she highlighted. So the way that it worked was that she would highlight things in my life that were causing me trouble. So my behavior being one of them and my responses to certain stimuli in society and relationships. So she would show me, I would relive experiences in my life, be it conflict, be it heartbreak, any sort of something that I was resistant to or found difficult in my life, but they were normally conflict between myself and someone and another, or how I dealt with heartbreak or adversity in some in some way. She would, I would relive it with her, and she would ask me if I felt that that way, the way that I had dealt with it, was still valuable and rewarding. And I would, having relived it, then I would say, no, no, that's not healthy, because normally I would become aggressive and violent and angry, and I recognized that it wasn't healthy for me. So then she would ask me if I would like to learn how to change that behavior and live differently and respond differently. And if I said yes, she would then take my place in the experience and I could observe her as me experiencing that conflict, that adversity. And she would then respond in a healthier way. I hope this makes sense. I hope I'm articulating myself correctly, sufficiently she would respond in a healthier way that would resolve the matter in, a, in as healthy way as, you, as anyone could expect. Having observed that, she would then ask me, do you agree that that is a healthier way of behaving? If I said yes, she would then teach me how she did it step by step. And then if I accepted that I'd understood those lessons, she would put me back into that situation as myself and I would have to, as I was being tested by this any whatever stimuli, stimulant, I would have to remember each of the lessons and respond in a more healthy way each time. And if I passed that test, then I could move on to another test and another lesson in a different environment. If I failed, she very patiently said, I think we probably need to do that one again. And I would say, yes, I know, yes because I would have resorted to anger and violence and something, frustration. And, and we would redo it again and she would revisit the lesson very patiently. Are you ready to go back and be tested? Yes, I am. Okay, here we go. And I would revisit it again. And the same situation would be played out in front of me and I would have to manage my emotions, manage my ego and respond from a place of compassion and forgiveness and gratitude and patience and, and love. Love is what we're talking about, trying to respond from a place of love. But the tests were specifically, can you have compassion for someone else? Can you have compassion for yourself? If you can have compassion for yourself and someone else, 
the next step is that you can, you can learn to forgive yourself and someone else. After you've learned to have compassion and forgive someone else and yourself, you can become grateful for the experiences that they present you and that you yourself experience. And then once you become grateful, everything changes because trauma, you could become grateful for the traumatic experience. And once you can do that, you no longer label it as traumatic. It's just a learning experience. And therefore, everything changed. But I had to, this was lifetimes. This is how it felt like me in this, in this spirit world. It felt like lifetimes of lessons, not hours. In this realm, it was obviously many hours, but in that it was lifetimes of learning that, I, that I've had now. And so it was incredibly valuable. And um, when I became too tired and I couldn't take any more lessons and I, was, and I was failing the more advanced tests more often, she asked me if I was too tired to carry on. And I, eventually I said, oh yes, I am a bit tired. And then I woke up and I was stone sober. I woke up and it was early morning. And uh, yeah, I was sober, no grogginess, no slowly waking up. I just w woke up bolt upright. Like, oh, okay, life is different now. I don't behave the way that I used to, and I'll behave differently. And uh, in a nutshell, that's my experience with ayahuasca. And why did Keith have to go all the way to Peru to access ayahuasca? Is that a question you thought of too? Aren't you curious? Again, I'm glad you asked. To explain that, here is Joe Neal, our pharmacology expert and a professor at University of Manchester was a very personal story of her own. The other thing that really um, made a difference for me was meeting a combat veteran. So a friend of my daughter's, and he, very smart chap, um, had, when he came out of the military, I mean, I learned a lot about the experience of, of the somebody who's a soldier. Um, I'd been in Afghanistan, had been a paratrooper, so they are on the front line. Seen, I'm sure, seen some terrible things. Fine, that was his career. Left school at 16. He was an, very committed to a military career, which I think many of these, these people are. Um, came out of the military, though, and then the PTSD hit him. So not sleeping, nightmares. Um, not being able to be out in public, really. Hypervigilant. Uh, and not really being able to access the help that he needed on the NHS. Um, very long wait for psychotherapy, for, for the um, um, talking therapies, mm. and offered antidepressants. And he, he trained with the Greenberries and, of course, the Americans with the MAPS program and MDMA, Rick Doblin, um, treatment for PTSD in the military. He had learned an awful lot about psychedelics and he had educated himself and was so felt that this was something that he would help him with his trauma um, as opposed to an antidepressant. So, but what we, I've since done a qualitative study interviewing uh, combat veterans about the use of psychedelics, trying to understand why um, they have chosen that route as opposed to taking an antidepressant. And many of them do not, it doesn't sit well with them taking a medication every day. And I think that's the other thing about psychedelics. It's a once or twice treatment. It's not a drug that's on board in the system long at all. It's the the psychological impact and the rewiring of the brain that we've all talk, we've talked about, um, those sort of the neurogenesis, the long-term effects 
that you get from a couple of doses that, that really makes the impact for these people. As long as you have all the therapy, the integration to make sense of the experience, which you can't do at the time. So anyway, long story short, his girlfriend eventually said, I cannot live with this. I can't be on a bus with you, you know, without you being hyper vigilant. And I can't have a conversation with you if we're out in public because you're just checking everything, um, you know, looking for, I, I guess, um, the enemy. So she persuaded him to go to Amsterdam and he sat in a hotel room and took two doses of truffles over a weekend, which is absolutely not how we would recommend that you do this. I mean, at least he'd learned a lot about it. He was probably in the right mindset to do it, but he, you know, he should have had loads of integration and loads of help. And he should have been supported by the NHS and by our society, and he wasn't. So this is, as Crispin Blunt says, he signed a blank check on his life, he fought for us, and he couldn't get the help that he needed on the NHS in the UK. He had to go out of the country at his own expense and sit in a hotel room and not have all the support so that he deserved. And I, I was that was one thing that struck me. I was horrified that he hadn't, hadn't been supported better. Um, but the other thing was that he healed himself. And for anybody who, who would doubt the, the importance of, of this medicine, you, have, you just need to talk to somebody like this. Of course, since then, I've talked to lots of people, hundreds of people. You know, we're doing an event today where we'll, we'll be talking to a former a cancer survivor. Um, so I spoke to him, he'd been in January, I spoke to him in August. He'd not gone near a psychedelic again. He'd come home and he'd transformed his life, basically. And he'd enrolled in medical school um, and, and was, you know, was living the life he should, he had the right to live. Um, through the transformational effects of the psychedelics. Keith and Jesse both had the benefit of healing through psychedelic-assisted therapy. Sadly, through the DEA's scheduling policies, psychedelics are not widely available in the U.S. or even in most developed nations. Both Jesse and Keith moved into action to find a way to help other veterans achieve freedom from their PTSD. And so the Heroic Hearts Project was born. Heroic Hearts has outlets both in the U.S. and the U.K., with Canada coming online soon. The mission of the organization is to connect military veterans struggling with mental trauma to psychedelic therapy. They seek to provide hope and healing to veterans that have been left hopeless by the dearth of other effective treatments. For those of you who are not convinced, or who maybe think that this is an excuse to use and abuse psychedelics for entertainment, I can't begin to tell you how wrong you are. Heroic Hearts goes through well-considered, highly developed protocols that screen participants to ensure safety, prepare for optimal outcomes, and optimize the opportunity for genuine healing. The program provides information, services, access, and guidance throughout the process, beginning before the retreat, through the retreat, and long after. Let's hear from Keith about the process. Um, so yeah, again, we we, we don't, these aren't trials. They're certainly not clinical trials. Even though I did reference that we're doing observational research study, but that's on a that's something else. Just generally speaking, on an operational level for us, prior to retreat, but after successfully passing our own vetting process, and then the vetting process of the retreat centre staff themselves. So there's two vetting processes that they've got to pass, and we run a default no uh, no prescriptions, no supplement uh, policy as well. So each participant needs to 
uh, withdraw themselves from their prescriptions prior to the retreat. And they need to, we need evidence that they've done that responsibly with the guidance and help of a qualified uh, physician as well. They can't just do it cold turkey. We need evidence that they've been doing this under guidance. So they've passed vetting. They've passed the second round of vetting. They're clear of any supplements and pharmaceuticals. Then we have, and we lo- we're loading them onto the retreat now. That group, that group will be, um, is a mandatory in, um, preparatory group video calls, t- two of them prior to the retreat. That will involve heroic heart staff. That will also involve, for the sake of continuity, staff at the retreat center. So this is before we've even gone. So it's our staff and their staff. And it's our staff who will actually be on the retreat with them as well, again, for continuity of relationships. And there we discuss about what needs to happen prior to the retreat and how you can best prepare for these sorts of experiences, be that mindset, be that diet, because some significant dietary changes need to need to happen. Otherwise, you're going to probably have quite a difficult... You might have a difficult experience anyway, but if you're taking on board lots of alcohol and sugar and caffeine and other drugs right before an ayahuasca ceremony, you could well be in line for something of a difficult experience. And so we discuss the importance of changing diet um, mindset, the introduction of practices like journaling, things like this. Or it's a simply preparatory calls. Okay, so that's the first step. Then we all go onto the retreat ourselves. And again, those people that were on the call from the retreat center, they're going to be the people that are hosting the retreat. And then immediately after each ceremony, there will be integrative coaching from the retreat staff who are obviously very experienced and qualified and trained. And that's after every ceremony. And then after the retreat itself, we have numerous uh, and at increasingly longer intervals, integrative group calls, uh, digital group calls, to help with that further integrative process, which is fundamental to the psychedelic therapeutic process itself. Interestingly, in addition to that, it's not in place yet. So that is our, that's our core operating um, procedure or to be a standard operating procedure. Um, in addition to that, what we're trying to achieve now is to provide a course through the faculty, um, of one of the doctors at Manchester University, trying to create our own integrative coaching program that will train people, anyone, anyone can go on the course. It's not yet up and running. Anyone can go on the course, get coaching in how to help others and themselves integrate the psychedelic experience, the psychedelic healing experience. And then we've got, we've created a community, a nationwide community of real people that exist across the nation that can offer actual in-person support. Um, because that can be, you know, that's ultimately what we need. We, we need connection. We need human connection. And so it's all well and good doing digital integrative uh, coaching, but then we hope to have a nationwide community of ambassadors and coaches. They're not necessarily, it's not an accredited course, but you don't always need an accreditation to, to help someone. And if you just need to have a go and have a cup of tea and tell someone that you're struggling and that the experience still hasn't settled inside your body and you just want to express yourself, 
then hopefully we're going to have a great deal of um, trained and compassionate people across the nation prepared to help, which is it's wonderful. So now you know what to expect logistically, but what is the experience from our participants' point of view? How does ayahuasca help someone who is trained to never surrender actually surrender? Jesse has a pretty good description for us. Yeah, I mean, that's actually pretty funny. Uh, it was like a funny story. We were with a group of veterans in, in a very intense uh, ayahuasca ceremony. And one of them was a, a ranger with, with a number of deployments. And that actually came up mid-ceremony. He was like, a ranger will never surrender. Uh, <laughs> and so we, we, we figure that we kind of just have to rebrand that word. So maybe surrender is not the best one to appeal, but maybe like acquiesce for the time being. But aside from the, 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 the words or how you frame it, that is, I think, the beauty and the power of why this is so effective is because, one, veterans are very good across the board at compartmentalizing and sort of pushing down those emotions. And so that's a lot of the barriers that just traditional talk therapy by itself can reach is that you're, you're almost like hitting against this wall that's been training to compartmentalize these feelings for so long. And that's why I can take 10 years, 20 years, even to get a, the slightest um, benefit from, from the talk therapy and they hit these walls. And that's where I think also psychedelics can really be an enhancer and not, you know, we're, we never say it's one or the other, you know, but if you go through talk therapy and you work with psychedelics, they just really work off each other very well. And so when you're in the situation and, you know, you drink it or you eat the mushroom, you're in that world for the next three, four plus hours. And the thing about ayahuasca in the therapeutic setting um, is that it's very poignant, is that of the other ones, it tends to be more in the term of like, it's very hard to ignore the trauma or whatever you've been very good at avoiding because it just throws it right in your face. And it's, you can almost like fight against it, like those finger traps, like the more you fight against it, the more it will throw at you. And, you know, eventually at some point you're not going to win against that because it's you against the ayahuasca, it's you against your mind. And you, you kind of have to get pushed to that point where you're just like, all right, like, what are you trying to tell me? What am I trying to learn? Like, why am I making this so hard? And so when you get to that point of friction and you're almost introducing it that, to yourself, you, you have to move up, you have to change, you have to like let go. And then once that let go position happens... And I would say that it's more of a let go than a surrender. You're working with it as opposed to an opposition of it. And you're realizing that your brain is your friend as long as you figure out how to work with it and you're not being in the self-destructive mode. And so once that is in coordination, that's when so much comes out. And you just see, you know, you see this build up, build up. You see like people coming from these ceremonies and like, man, what the hell is that? And then when they have that break, that, that, that let go moment, that's when a lot, so much work comes out, so much change, transformation, peace of mind. Uh, it's a continual process. Again, it's not magic, but uh, that is, I think, the power of this, that um, wherein like some other therapy you could just walk away or just shut down, whereas this, you can't do that. Yeah, and it's also you, it's like anything else. We believe ourselves the most, uh, oftentimes to our detriment. But when you are face, when you are, your brain is pushing this thing in front of you in a way that you understand and interpret, there's no way to ignore it. It's there. It's, it's in your language and uh, you know, you know, it's true. 
Heroic Hearts is also invested in supporting the science of psychedelic medicine. They have partnered with scientific organizations that are performing well-considered, scientifically rigorous research in order to advance the understanding of how and why these substances are working. MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is one such organization. You might remember some of the MAPS work that was mentioned in the previous episode. If you're thinking that this is a fly-by-night organization and that has just recently glommed onto a recent fad, you're definitely wrong. MAPS was founded in 1986 with an aim to create safe and legal opportunities for the use of psychedelics. Their studies look at MDMA, marijuana, LSD, ibogaine, ayahuasca, and other psychedelic substances. In fact, in May of 2021, MAPS published their phase 3 clinical trial results for MDMA-assisted therapy for severe chronic PTSD. The experiences of Keith and Jesse, while poignant, are far from rare. PTSD has reached crisis levels around the world, while new treatment research has stagnated, with the exception of the application of psychedelics, of course. At the time of this broadcast, there are over 300 clinical trials in various stages of completion that are using psychedelic medicines to treat a variety of conditions including PTSD, depression, addiction, OCD, and more. These trials are happening in some of the most premier institutions around the world, including Johns Hopkins, Imperial College, Yale, and more. In short, psychedelics are seemingly finally getting the positive attention that they deserve, and they are being put through rigorous research and reviews that have long been ignored. According to the Military Times, suicide rates among veterans continue to rise despite the immediate programs, funding, and attention being directed towards the issue. And even the most recent data is two years old. 6,435 veterans died by suicide in 2018, just in the United States. I want to introduce you to John, a 42-year-old retired combat veteran who was injured in an explosion in Iraq in 2005. Upon return to civilian life, his PTSD advanced so dramatically that he had five suicide attempts, two of which actually included pulling the trigger. Of those two trigger pulls, one failed due to faulty bullets from the manufacturer and the second one thankfully failed due to a broken spring. John eventually found his way into a MAP-sponsored study of MDMA for PTSD. His experience allowed his psyche to sufficiently allay the fight-or-flight reaction in order to allow him to address his issues. In his words, and I quote, This therapy is what ensured that my stepson has a father instead of a folded flag. But instead of us describing it to you, can we talk to Dr. Jennifer Mitchell, who was the leading author of the paper that was published in Nature Medicine in May of 2021. Jenny Mitchell is a professor in the Department of Neurology and Psychiatry and the Deputy Associate Chief of Staff for Research and Development at the San Francisco Veteran Affairs. She recently became a member of UC Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics and the UCSF Neuroscape Psychedelics Division. She received her PhD in neuroscience from UCSF where her doctoral research focused on understanding how stress and anxiety influence opioid tolerance and addiction. Here is Jenny Mitchell. Sure. My name is Jennifer Mitchell, and I work for UCSF in San Francisco. So, yeah, Adam Ghazali runs uh, Neuroscape, 
which is uh, a group of divisions, and uh, the newest division is psychedelic science. Right. So I'm a neuroscientist and behavioral pharmacologist by training and have spent the last 25 or so years um, identifying and developing novel therapeutics for a number of what we used to term access one disorders. So stress, anxiety, depression, PTSD, uh, alcohol and substance use disorders, and then related comorbidities like impulsivity and, and compulsivity. And so, um, We've been studying most recently over the past like four and a half years, the effects of MDMA on PTSD. And then we're also interested in looking at the impact of psilocybin on uh, alcohol use disorder. So uh, Adam approached us, oh gosh, a little over a year now and asked if we wanted to team up and join Neuroscape. And we were delighted to do so because it allows us, affords us the opportunity to work with all these really incredible um, neuroscientists at UCSF. So we asked Jenny Mitchell why she was interested in psychedelic research, and more importantly, what was so different about MDMA compared to all the other psychedelics that we spoke of, like LSD, psilocybin, or DMT? Well, there are both similarities and differences. So on a, on a similarities level, they all affect serotonergic neurotransmission to some degree, right? And there are just a ton of serotonin receptors. I don't even remember how many, maybe 14, 17 serotonin receptors. Every time I turn around, it seems like there's a new one. And so uh, the impact of each of these compounds on that array of serotonin receptors uh, still needs to be elucidated, better elucidated. So we have some idea. And of course, we think that one particularly important receptor for the effects of uh, psychedelic compounds is the 5-HT2A receptor. Uh, but with respect to MDMA in particular, its actions are primarily on a presynaptic uh, transporter pump. And instead of that transporter pump taking serotonin, this neurotransmitter from this sort of extracellular area that we call the synaptic cleft and putting it back into the cell, it winds it down. And so it sort of spins in reverse and serotonin instead comes out of the, of the presynaptic terminal and sits in the synaptic cleft. So basically you get a lot of serotonin, endogenous serotonin release following MDMA administration. And that itself can act on your, you know, sort of inherent uh, system. Before we go any further, we wanted to come back to one major myth and a cause for taboo that people hold about psychedelics. We addressed this in episode three, when Albert Hoffman's recollection of what the visions were, and again with Brian Roth in episode five, where we discussed pharmacology. Both those answers were that psychedelic visions were not hallucinations, and we even addressed that with some definitions of what hallucinations are. So can we now ask a clinician researcher about psychedelics and the so-called hallucinations? Are they really hallucinations? Here's Dr. Jenny Mitchell again. Huh. That's a really good question. I mean, I don't really also know how we'd ratify a definition of the word psychedelic. We could all raise our hands, take a vote. I, I, for, for me personally, it does mean that it can be transformative and it is sort of an inner window into your subconscious workings. It's not really a great definition. I guess it's easier to say what it isn't. Um, but to me, it's different than hallucinogenic, which just sort of suggests that you see things that aren't there or hear things that aren't there, right? Uh, and psychedelic really means it is 
soul exposing to some degree. And that allows you the opportunity perhaps to see yourself more clearly or from a, a different vantage point and then hopefully work on yourself to, um, to better yourself and to become the best possible version of yourself. When we conducted this interview with Dr. Mitchell, it was just a few days after the pivotal study for MDMA, sponsored by MAPS, was accepted for publication. This was also before the rest of the world started singing the praises of MAPS and MDMA for PTSD via two New York Times columns. Since then, it has received massive publicity. Absolutely. So I will tell you then separately that it's, um, and MAPS has a lot to say about this too, it's under embargo um, let me just check my email here and see if they've changed anything. Um, nope, it's still embargoed. <laughs> so I have 24 hours to get the proofs back to Nature Medicine, and then they are going to give us the publication date, they said, within another 24 hours. So in about 48 hours, we should know when that paper is going to come out. Now that we have introduced you to the clinician who led the trial, who was also the first author of the published study looking at MDMA in PTSD populations, Can we dig a bit deeper on what it takes to do a trial? After all, you can read in the press or the actual paper where 90 patients with severe PTSD, so essentially the worst of the worst patients due to their symptoms, were enrolled in this study. It was very sobering to learn that these subjects in this trial had 14 years of PTSD on average. If we go back to what we said about the cause of PTSD earlier, combat trauma, abuse trauma, and developmental trauma, the trial had representatives of all classes. In fact, 84% of the subjects, the vast majority, had developmental trauma. MDMA was administered three times as part of an 18-week study with 46 out of 90 participants receiving MDMA therapy and 44 participants received therapy with placebo. All of Rick Doblin's inferences of talk therapy, preparation, and integration practices were included, much like what they had done in an earlier stage clinical study. At the end of 18 weeks, the primary efficacy endpoint was based on the change from baseline in an independently assessed clinical interview of PTSD severity, which assessed the average change in functional impairment in work and school, social and family life. Want to know how amazing the results were? Among the participants in the MDMA-assisted therapy group, 67% no longer qualified for PTSD diagnosis after just three MDMA-assisted therapy sessions. And 88% of the participants experienced a clinically significant reduction in symptoms. While in the placebo group, only 32% no longer qualified for PTSD diagnosis at the end of the two-month follow-up, and 60% experienced a clinically significant reduction in symptoms. The results were so substantial that the tests applied by scientists to assess impact were 0.0001, meaning that the possibility that this result was by chance was 1 in 10,000. This outcome substantiates the years of hard work by the folks involved. Can I give you another example where such a result was obtained? It is also the only example that we know and I hope everybody involved knows about this fact as well. The example comes from the area of heart failure, which was a scourge in the 1980s and 1990s, and it had no treatments back then. In fact, 50% of the people die within five years after diagnosis if inadequate treatment is provided. 
and one drug changed it all. It was a story of a drug called Ascarvedilol, a beta blocker that was trialed in thousands of patients and in its early pivotal trials of 1094 patients, the p-value or the statistical significant value was similar to that to what was obtained by the MDMA trials and the FDA at the time decided that it was unethical to withhold the therapy from the subjects in the placebo group. Guess what the person who spearheaded the effort did? Bob Ruffalo Jr., the lead discoverer of the molecule, when he heard of the FDA decision, spent the evening in a London hotel room crying in joy. And you can find about that in an interview in our earlier episodes of a parent podcast, Scraps. But for people like me, attrition in clinical trials is common. Patients who enroll into a clinical trial, especially in the disease population for testing efficacy, have to adhere to strict protocols in testing. So one can imagine that this can catch up to them and as a result, patients can drop out of therapy. We asked Jenny Mitchell about this problem and how psychedelic clinical trials are different to other clinical trials. Here is her answer. Right. So I think in terms of attrition, one of the things that I'm hoping is going to become clear over time with the psychedelics in general, not not just MDMA, but it is the idea, I mean, first of all, for many of the psychedelics, if you're only doing a single administration, you don't really have to worry so much about attrition. Um, but for those that involve a lot more work, and again, those that are placebo controlled so that somebody would have to keep coming back again and again, even if they were just receiving placebo, you have to worry about attrition. And um, I think that that is uh, probably going to turn out to be a an infinitesimally smaller problem in uh, psychedelic therapies than it is in current standard of care. Because when you, for example, if we're just taking PTSD um, as our example, if you look at dropout rates for prolonged exposure therapy or even CBT, those are, are actually quite high. It's hard to get through um, the, the, you know, the 10 weeks of, of standardized PE, for example, and keep going through and revisiting that trauma over and over again. It's a complicated process and many people don't feel that they can do it. So by comparison, my, my guess is that by the end of, you know, 2024 or so, we're going to be able to sit down and look at all of these psychedelic therapies and say, that, well, there's a real difference here in terms of attrition. So that's the first thing. But I think that in, in general, um, with phase trials, one of the problems that we're still having is uh, surrounds inclusion and inclusion of um, people from uh, marginalized communities, uh, inclusion of people of color, uh, inclusion of people that are themselves spread so thin that they really cannot figure out how to get treatment into their lives. And uh, so it's just sort of a bigger philosophical question. How do we make sure that these treatments actually get to the populations that need the most? And I think that's something we're all going to have to, you know, put our heads together to figure out over the next few years. Isn't it amazing? So we definitely know that it can come down to the dose and more importantly, the next three words. It's psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and not just psychedelics or psychotherapy that is useful, but the combination. Jenny also raised an interesting question about access and reach of these therapies, and how does one get these therapies to marginalized populations where they're needed most? 
Once again, this is fundamentally different to how existing healthcare is delivered. Healthcare is delivered by resources that one has purchased, for example, insurance policies, or by a queue and prioritization in the nationalized healthcare system, or simply, as in some parts of Asia, self funded. It's truly remarkable that when MAPS initiated the clinical trials for MDMA, they planned to perform two phase three trials. The first one was just published, and the second one is just starting off, and this time with the European Medicines Agency. The remarkable and forward thinking EMEA regulators have advised MAPS to include refugee populations, and MAPS and the leading trial site, Charity in Germany, have gladly accepted that challenge. So you can see how this still-to-be-approved MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is trying to change the world and make it a better place. But there is one challenge to delivering these therapies. Due to the lack of availability of these treatments on existing healthcare systems, organizations like Heroic Hearts in the U.S. and the U.K. are organizing retreats for the military personnel. We heard from Keith Abraham about how he is planning to expand this to first responders. While it's a noble cause to have these systems in place via existing healthcare systems, there is a bottleneck. The bottleneck to delivering these therapies are due to the availability of trained psychotherapists. So how are people thinking about this? We will come to that in just a couple minutes. First, we asked Jenny, is psychedelics really a tool that takes out the subjectivity of psychologists and the rapport and trust that they build with a patient? I think you are making sense. Absolutely. So, and I think it is a really good question. I, I think that, you know, I cannot say uh, enough great things about our, our therapy team uh, at our study site. I am impressed by them every single day that I work with them. And I think they're among the best in their field. Uh, even so, I think that they would say if they were sitting here with us that those compounds definitely facilitate their ability to uh, create a, a therapeutic rapport with their patient and to feel like they have established a bond with them and a trust with them and enable the patient to, to feel closer and more open with them. And that also facilitates the work that they're going to do together. So I would say that, you know, that's definitely a benefit to the therapist or the provider is, I'm sure it is a horrible struggle. I'm again, not a therapist. And I always tease and say, no one would ever want me to be, but uh, I respect those that are. And I see how hard they work, how hard they work to reach a subject who has gone through so much and is so closed and is so terrified of being open and how hard a process that is. If anything could make it slightly easier, I think we'd all be very delighted to, to try that. And so I'm sure that that is a component of why they themselves do this work and why they are so interested in it. So how does a therapy session work? Well, uh, it's an all-day session, typically. It runs a different amount of time if you're administering MDMA than if you're administering psilocybin. The psilocybin sessions are often an hour or two shorter than the MDMA sessions, and that is in part because the um, approved protocol for MDMA administration right now for clinical use involves a supplemental half-dose, which is administered about an hour and a half into the experimental session after the primary dose. So that also uh, pushes the session out and makes it a little bit longer. But in general, the subject typically comes in in the morning, first thing in the morning, and uh, sits down with a therapy team. There are usually two people in uh, administering therapy for most of these uh, treatment sessions. 
And they sit in a room that looks a lot like a very comfortable living room. So there's usually a sofa, sometimes a sofa bed. Um, The lighting is typically dim. There's often music playing. The participant is given things like a warm blanket and eye shades and a pillow and made comfortable. And they talk a little bit about intentionality, about what they're hoping to accomplish, or again, what the session might provide them with, the reason that they've come to therapy in the first place. And then they take the compound. And uh, then the rest sort of happens organically. In other words, most of these therapeutic sessions are not uh, very intense in terms of manualized therapy. They're not very... um, focused on if you're if you're used to manualized therapy if you're used to cognitive behavior therapy or used to prolonged exposure therapy or some other form of manualized therapy it's sort of like a cookbook at times where you you know you read through and in session three you're supposed to hit these four topics and in session five you're supposed to sort of wrap it up and it doesn't work quite like that it's very um participant guided and so over the, the course of these several hours as it unfolds the participant usually begins to revisit the trauma on their own. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating about psychedelic compounds is they seem to take you to where you need to go. And so you don't need somebody to keep pointing that out, right? It just sort of happens. And then they go to where they need to go and they, they start talking usually. Uh, either they're quiet for a while or, or they just start talking about what they had previously experienced. But again, it, what's sort of fascinating is that, and this is just my, my, my personal subjective perspective is that what happens is they can do it from a slightly different vantage point or slightly different point of view. So whereas before when they'd relived that trauma, they felt shame or embarrassment or fear or um, anxiety in, in these moments, they typically have a a different perspective and they have a lot of self-compassion and a lot of self-empathy. And that seems to lead them to uh, some self-forgiveness as well the acknowledgement that maybe the whole thing wasn't their fault or the acknowledgement that maybe it, you know, they're they're validating their, their feelings and uh, also acknowledging their ability to get past them. So that's sort of how a session unfolds during the day. And then, you know, at the, at the end of a five to eight hour experience, the subject begins to return to baseline and it, depending on the therapeutic protocol at that point, we, we often take a little break and, uh, you know, some of our study staff come in and, and check the subject out and make sure that they're okay to be released to, to family members and to go home and, and sleep for the night at home. And in other cases, they stay with us overnight in, um, in, a, in a bedroom suite and we monitor them and make sure that, um, that they get a good night's rest before we start integration therapy the next morning. So in all of these protocols, the next morning there is integration therapy. When the subject is back at baseline and the therapy team has had a chance to rest, because this is intense for a therapy team to do this kind of work, uh, they all get back together in the treatment room and they talk about what happened and what the the participant has been able to glean from that experience. And, and then they, they do more integration work typically over the course of the next few weeks and that's sort of how a treatment session goes. And then for different studies, we have different numbers of treatment sessions. So for MAPS, for MDMA, they're currently uh, using a protocol that uh, has three treatment sessions as part of that uh, participation. And then for most of the psilocybin protocols, it's a single psilocybin administration. In fact, what MAPS is doing currently is training every single site psychiatrist and psychologist and therapists 
via the training program. The program was devised by Michael and Annie Midhofer, who are husband and wife combo of psychiatrist and a therapy nurse. So they cover all aspects of training and here is Jenny Mitchell recounting her training program. Yes, I can. I've actually, uh, got, again, not a therapist, but I have gone through the training uh, program myself and uh, found it to be fascinating. It's um, a five-part training program, A, B, C, D, and E, that the sponsor provides that allows therapists to really feel comfortable um, using those substances in their practice and that also allows them to partner with other therapists that have previously delivered those treatments or that are currently delivering those treatments and give them supervision as they work with uh, subjects in this context and, uh, you know, uh, therapy hours, role play, uh, all sorts of different things that I think the therapists find to be invaluable. Um, most of the sponsors, not all of the sponsors, because some of the sponsors in this field right now don't, I think, value the, the therapeutic component or the role of the therapist, the facilitator, perhaps as much as others, but MAP most certainly does. And so the, the process of training therapists is an important process to them. And I know one that they've really uh, committed themselves to uh, over the next couple of years to, to bettering, and they're trying to get uh, more people trained up so that they can act as facilitators so that, fingers crossed, if their therapeutic um, ever is uh, going to come to market, there are providers there that can help people immediately and we don't have a huge bottleneck as we wait for more people to get trained up. So uh, did you have, like, what other questions can I answer for you about the therapist training? Because I actually think it's, it's fabulous. We did ask Jenny Mitchell more questions and she confirmed that to roll out the MDMA therapy, while there is not an existing bottleneck for the trials, there will be a bottleneck for broader access. In fact, it is estimated that for optimal reach of the MDMA therapy to every state in the US, approximately 24,000 therapists are needed. Approximately 24,000 therapists need to be trained, keeping in line with existing population of the United States. And you can imagine what this number means for the rest of the world. And for the recreational users of psychedelics, we have a very strong message from Jenny Mitchell. I am a huge fan of studying set and setting. And I'm a very firm believer that the environment plays a, a major and important role in the therapeutic efficacy of these compounds. So I think that's something that we all need to look at, that that really should not be discounted. So I recognize that there are um, commercial entities in this space now that would like to disagree with that. And they would like to say, you can just, you know, go home and, and you know, put your feet up and take a, a psilocybin and go to sleep and everything will be fine. And you can go walk your dog and maybe, you know, chat with your neighbors. I, I, you know, and, and more power to them if it, if it happens. But I personally am concerned about um, not considering the setting when you are talking about uh, administering these compounds. I think setting is particularly important. And I think that, you know, certainly one, one of the things that people say that I hear a lot uh, when they talk about these compounds and they doubt their efficacy 
for these indications is, oh, I dropped shrooms in high school and I didn't find that I got over all of my trauma or I did MDMA at Burning Man and I got to tell you, it didn't do any of these things to help me. And I think, well, why would it have? Uh, that was not uh, the setting that you would really want to be thoughtful uh, about creating if you were looking to address your trauma, right? And so I, I think that that's something that we need to really delve into further is what's the appropriate setting in which to take these compounds and how can it benefit the, the therapeutic outcome? And so it would be nice if in a perfect world, what I keep hoping, and maybe it's just my, my foolish pipe dream, uh, scientific pipe dream, is that there would be a process maybe by which providers would be licensed to work with these compounds, um, not just by the study sponsors at present, but you know, in a more generalized way, the way we expect our doctors to have additional training before they administer buprenorphine for opioid um, abuse, for example, or for opioid use disorder. That they have to, in addition to holding an MD, they have to undergo a certain number of hours of training, and they're only allowed to administer buprenorphine to a certain number of people per year so that we know that we don't have to worry about uh, deviation, you know, uh, of the substance, et cetera, that they're really being thoughtful and that there's really appropriate oversight. So maybe, maybe someday psychedelics would be like that and the providers would have some additional training and they would be able to sit down with their, their, um, you know, with their, what would you even call them, with their participants and, and uh, go through, walk through the, the best way to design the setting to have as much therapeutic impact as possible. We did tell you in episode five that serotonin is made from tryptophan and there is a strong role for the gut microorganisms that make 95% of the serotonin. So the role of gut microbiota and its link to serotonin was well known before the microbiota's role in other disorders. Can we tell you a bit about how the scientists put together some of the puzzle pieces while ideating? Here it goes. It is now known from a 2014 paper that inflammation prior to or at the time of trauma exposure increases the risk of developing PTSD symptoms. The study included 2,600 war zone deployed Marines and their resiliency to develop PTSD was assessed. The study included 2,600 war zone deployed Marines and their propensity to develop PTSD was assessed. Marines with a higher blood concentration of C-reactive protein, a biomarker for inflammation, <laughs> Marines with a higher blood concentration of C-reactive protein, a biomarker for inflammation, at boot camp had higher risk of post-deployment PTSD symptoms. CRP, or C-reactive protein, is a very nonspecific marker of inflammation, but definitely the easiest to measure. What comes next is even more interesting. Another paper in 2019, which was a report on a working group of a scientific body published in the Journal of Nutrition, that reduction of alpha diversity of the microbiome drives inflammation. The consensus is that the microbiome characterized by high alpha diversity is a healthy microbiome, and that stress by decreasing alpha diversity makes the gut microbiome more vulnerable to opportunistic pathogens. Opportunistic pathogens can cause gut inflammation or leaky gut, resulting in translocation of bacteria from the gut into the body 
and subsequently systemic inflammation, which can be detected by increases in biological signatures of inflammation, including C-reactive protein. More studies have pointed to the fact that trauma and stressor exposure can increase proliferation of pathobionts, microorganisms that typically behave themselves, but under some conditions become pathogenic, leading to the cascade effects and causing increased inflammation. We do know that microbiome population takes years to stabilize, yet ayahuasca-treated veterans via the work that organizations like Heroic Hearts are doing is driving remission from PTSD. And since ayahuasca brew blocks the monoamine oxidase enzyme in the gut and increases the DMT levels in the body, scientists are also currently investigating what impact ayahuasca therapy have on gut microbiota. Here is Jesse Gould, CEO of Heroic Hearts, who is pioneering this work. Absolutely. Yeah, we're actually, we're working, I think we're one of the first that's doing, we have IRB approval to do the effects of ayahuasca and demoline psilocybin as well on the gut microbiome. So we're working with University of Georgia and University of Colorado Boulder. So there's a Chris Lowry, he has the Lowry lab. And so we have, I think, about 12 samples of gut microbiome there right now. We're going to try to increase those over the year and just see if uh, this, this substance, if it has any sort of ascertainable effect or discernible effect on, on that. And then maybe, you know, figure out if there's connections. It's Again, it's very early, but even if there's small instances or inclinations, it's, it's all fascinating stuff. The field of PTSD has wallowed in the lack of good available treatments in the past. And organizations like Heroic Hearts is now involved in a psilocybin therapy in a retreat setting for military veterans to be conducted in collaboration with Professor David Nutt's group at Imperial College in London. The sun is definitely shining bright on PTSD sufferers and with all these efforts pointing to a potential help that has long been missing. A controlled psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy an integration session can change all of that. Finally, there is one aspect that we haven't discussed in great detail, the spiritual aspect of the psychedelic. Here is Jesse Gould, our U.S. Army veteran. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a big one, especially, I think it's pretty common in ayahuasca. And I, I, I feel like I have a, maybe a little bit different definition of spirituality. And so, I mentioned before that, in my opinion, this is my hypothesis as a non-doctor or psychotherapist, but I think at the very least, uh, psychedelic treatment works on three different layers. And so we kind of talked about the psychotherapy side of things where you might see these these issues uh, that you've been struggling with and it will show you them in sort of a different approach or you might be able to handle them or move past that story. The physical side, you know, we mentioned the gut microbiome. Uh, there is also initial evidence that it might, you know, heal the brain actually with neurogenesis, possibly reduce inflammation. We're doing some studies around that. But then the third, and I think this is an important spot that often gets neglected or ignored, is the spirituality side. And my definition of that is kind of more of a connectivity. And different people need to connect to different things. So some that might take the form more of the, a religious connection, sort of um, your spot in the world, your spot in, in sort of the cosmos and life. Uh, for other people, it's really maybe more on a, a grounded level, the, the community around you, uh, your, your brotherhood, your sisterhood, your fellow veterans. Um, and, you know, there's also even what you see with a lot of indigenous tribes or, or through the psychedelic process, connection to nature, connection to 
the world in general of like, hey, you are a, a something moving these microcosms forward and you are a part of it. You know, you can be this, you're drinking this plant and it's having this profound effect on you, making you see all this other information that you never even knew was there. There's this inherent connection to it. And so again, I think that's why it works because it works on your level. So for for maybe a more religious or, or Christian theme kind of thing, probably wouldn't affect myself because that that's not um, you know my necessary belief system. But for somebody that that how that's how they translate the world and that's what they need in terms of comfort and connectivity, then that might be the thing that gets them to there. Um, and so I do think that is important. And you see that with a lot of vets, and that's why we we found similar things with athletes. Is they leave these worlds, these professions, these lives, uh, and they lose all that. They lose their sense of purpose. They lose their community. They lose self identity. And there's not a lot of mechanisms in modern society that help you recapture those. It's kind of more you have to go in the system, and you know you go into the corporate job, and you're going to be there for ten years, and you rank up. There's not this focus on connectivity or, or you know, sort of the broader side of you. What what is outside of you, not just in this uh, egocentric me. I am. This is what I did. And here is Keith Abraham with his version of spirituality. Spirituality has on, had only just entered into my peripheral awareness. I had actually, if I do it real, if I think carefully, I had actually had what I've recognized now is generally termed as a spontaneous spiritual awakening. That was just before my trip to Peru. Uh, but I was still struggling just because I'd had this sort of spiritual uh, awakening didn't, um, that actually made things worse from, from one, because I had this great conflict, this double perspective in my life of, well, I'm a big, tough military man. Oh, but I'm really sensitive spiritual, which, you know, I had no personal relationship to any aspect of my spiritual being at all. That was in full denial. So it was very difficult for me. But then when, I, when I'd had my two ayahuasca ceremonies, that was when I developed it. That was when I let go of the, the old, big, tough, have to be robust and strong and hard. And I let go of that then and accepted more fully and roundly the, my identity as, uh, as someone that is spiritual as well as plenty of other things. It's be tough. I haven't necessarily articulated this, um, before. So I know full well that when I was, while I was serving spirituality, if I'd even heard that word or even spoken that word out loud, that would have meant hippies, um, that from that perspective were, not a group of people that I would have associated myself with or that I would have wanted to spend any time with. Um, I probably felt that their perspective on life wasn't particularly valuable or helpful to them as much as anyone else. This is, this is the perspective of me as a serving forces member. And so I would have avoided them for sure. Um, but then when like I said, I'd had this awakening prior to my ayahuasca experience. So there was a shift, but like I said, it was actually difficult. It, it, 
it helped in many, many ways, but it also was quite difficult and challenging for me. So I didn't really have much of a vocabulary yet. And not that there's anything wrong with hippies. I have a different mindset, but um, yeah, it isn't necessarily, it's not about, it's not about, I don't believe that it's necessarily about change. It's about stripping away stuff that's unnecessary, stuff that's no longer required. Yeah, I see it much more that way. It's the stripping away and not, I haven't changed, you know, from a certain perspective, from a certain external perspective. Yeah, of course I've changed. But really, I kind of understand that I've just been stripped away of all of the nonsense and the shields that I put up in front of me to protect myself unnecessarily. Just been stripped away of some of that stuff. And so, have I really changed? On a certain perspective, no, I haven't changed at all. Um, so it might for the be- entirely for the better. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I, I can understand. There's a, the whole the spiritual aspect of of society. Some people can reel back from. I can understand that because some there are some aspects of it that make you, make the intellect or the rationale revolt. And if it does that, why would you? If it if it makes you revolt, don't do it but you don't have to you don't have to judge and condemn other people that do you know so uh, that's and we hope that we have shown you through glimpses of people's work and experiences that psychedelics can help but there is more to reveal in studies from depression and substance abuse and we shall do just that You've been listening to Psychedelics. Psychedelics is a Scraps original podcast produced and narrated by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Scraps is a volunteer-run organization created by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists and innovators as a service to the world. Select research for this podcast series was performed by Sharina Rice. The producers thank Clara Burtonshaw for her invaluable input. Multimedia services was provided by... Dr. Romeo Ratch. The scripts were written and edited by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Financial support to cover the production cost was from Cyber Inc. and a kind donor BB. We thank Mr. Krish Ashok for letting us use some of his music. Recordings were done at Caprino Studios in the UK and Slightly Red Studio in San Francisco. Swaminathan Tignana Samandam performed the mixing and mastering. All recordings, including interviews, are properties of the producers and should not be reproduced without permission. The show notes, transcripts and useful links pertaining to the episode are located at the podcast website, psychedelics.com. <laughs>